so welcome and like I said thank you very much for being here it's an honor to speak with you and uh, have you as my guest um, you know you you've been a Supreme Court judge and I was thinking what kind of introduction beyond that what kind of accolades accolades can I give you besides Supreme Court judge and uh, you know I think it, in my mind at least everything else pales to being a Supreme Court judge so I guess I would ask you in your mind outside of being a Supreme Court judge what what stands out as as accolades in your mind sorry to maybe an interesting way to start an interview to ask you yourself but uh, let's let's start there some big highlights in in your career uh, well, I suppose uh, professionally, uh, prior to going on the Supreme Court, uh, uh, the highlights uh, were uh, either in government, uh, where I was uh, Associate Deputy Minister for Canada for a period, or in private practice, where I had uh, some significant uh, cases, appeals that I argued. Uh, uh, many of them in front of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, mm-hmm. So I suppose uh, the, uh, you know, professionally it has all been related uh, uh, to the law or to uh, public uh, functions such as uh, the bureaucracy or various uh, international organizations. I was the uh, chair of the Justice Committee in the UN for about five years. So that's where all of these things are part of a composite that, uh, that I suppose I am somewhat known by. Really incredible career you've had. And uh, I'll start with even your early years private practice. You know, I was I was thinking lawyers are a group of overachievers. And, you know, I'm, I'm in general practice. And in a way, I consider myself a bit of an overachiever. But looking up to you, you know, you've achieved so much more. Most lawyers could only dream of appearing before the Supreme Court even once. And you appeared even as a lawyer, I believe, over 50 times. So so how, how does one, uh, you know, excel in private practice? Uh, well, how did you excel in private practice? How did that journey got, come about? Well, I think uh, it's very important to have uh, mentors. I think uh, the law is not something, uh, at least the litigation is not something you can pick up through uh, books and uh, reading. I think uh, young uh, lawyers and uh, law students, you know, should spend time in the, in the courts, just watching uh, trials, watching appeals, watch how different lawyers uh, work. Uh, and I think uh, when they become lawyers, and I'm speaking really of litigation, uh, it's very important to get experience uh, on your feet quickly. Uh, uh, I think there's a huge scope for pro bono work. I think uh, if you're with a law firm that doesn't uh, allow pro bono work, you're in the wrong firm because it's as good an investment for them as it is for you to have your uh, skills uh, honed in uh, real life situations uh, in the court. I think you have to uh, get yourself known uh, either by taking on cases that have a certain profile or by uh, doing academic writing or appearing on panels 
or attending conferences and uh, networking. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think uh, professional success comes to those who sit around waiting for it. I think you have to, to go out and get it. But having said that, a lot of people go out and get it and don't uh, succeed, and I think there's a lot of luck associated with it. I think uh, as a young lawyer, you might pick up a case or two which has a, a public importance, which uh, has uh, some public profile, uh, and in law, one case leads to another. Word of mouth is really what uh, gets your practice going. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, uh, uh, Sometimes, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. I have uh, colleagues from law school and the profession who I thought were tremendously able. Uh, but for one reason or another, the career didn't pan out particularly. Uh, there are others who I wouldn't have thought uh, would have been uh, much of a success who proved a great success. So I don't know into which category I fall, but I. Uh, uh, no, I, I think you do what you can, but at the end of the day, uh, it's probably beyond your control as to how far you progress in the profession. Mm. So I've heard you speak in the past about your uh, Bert McKinnon as a mentor to you and how, you know, you discussed uh, the first thing you said was uh, the, the importance of mentorship. So can you comment on, you know, him as a mentor, the importance of mentorship and how do you think younger lawyers today are, if you, if you have a comment of it, dealing with mentorship, perhaps in the age of Zoom? Well, I think it's very difficult in the age of Zoom because it, uh, mentorship uh, essentially depends on informal, casual contacts, day in, day out, working with somebody else, uh, you know, seeing, seeing how they confront uh, the situations. When I uh, began at the bar, so I articled in 1965, uh, it, the, the whole uh, uh, bar admission course thing and uh, uh, articles uh, you know, was a given. Uh, more or less everybody had uh, some kind of uh, mentorship. Uh, lawyers regarded it as a professional obligation to take on articling students and they didn't expect to make money on them. And I think all of that has changed. Uh, you know, the profession is much more a business. I think lawyers say, well, if I'm not going to make money out of these people. Why should I bother? They simply take away time from uh, work that uh, would, uh, would be uh, profitable. Uh, my uh, relation uh, with Bert McKinnon was a very important uh, personally and uh, professionally. I uh, uh, looked up to him as uh, not only a, a very excellent lawyer, but as a man of great integrity. Uh, a man who saw the uh, profession as a as a calling. I think he really saw the uh, uh, the important, the social importance of a, a good functioning legal system. Uh, I saw that he took off he took on cases from all over the system, either uh, cases that were very important to the clients but may have appeared trivial to the legal profession. Other cases uh, highly important. Uh, the first case I appeared with him on I, when I was a student in the Supreme Court was an uh, Aboriginal case called Regina and George, which, of course, he took uh, pro bono. 
you know, so he he uh, uh, he had a very wide ranging practice, a very wide ranging interest. He had taught constitutional law in, uh, at Osgood uh, for a while as a part time lecturer. He'd been in the fleet air arm uh, during the war, and so uh, public service was something that uh, he uh, passed on to us. Uh, and just in the way he conducted himself in court uh, was uh, uh, an inspiration. <laughs> so I've tried to work uh, through my uh, practice uh, with uh, uh, you know, articling students, young lawyers, uh, uh, you know, working with them, they can take what they want, leave what they want. Uh, they don't have to emulate uh, uh, the senior lawyer in every respect. But at least they get exposed to the full range of how you think and why you do things uh, the way you do. And I think it's a great pity that the articling program has been cut back, that the Law Society doesn't treat uh, taking on articling students as a professional obligation. And I think the profession is going to suffer. And uh, particularly when you talk about Zoom, uh, you know, if, if all a young lawyer gets is what appears on a computer display screen, uh, then they're simply not going to get the kind of training that is required. Yeah, hard to replace that in-person uh, connection. I, I agree. Um, but so much, so much has been done on, on Zoom. It's incredible. It's a new new way to communicate. And that's what we're doing now. And uh, I mean, you talk about the mentorship and giving back. I feel that's exactly what you're doing now. So again, I appreciate you giving your time because a lot of these listeners, my listeners are young lawyers and law students. So um, appreciate appreciate your time on this on this discussion, first of all. But Going back to, uh, you know, the giving back to the community, you, you worked in public service, and I don't know if you'd consider uh, representing governments also somewhat of a, a pro bono sort of uh, for the good cause. Um, talking to someone like you gives me an opportunity to discuss international law and public international law. So I don't know if you want to comment on those international cases that you've been involved in, and um, we, we can start there. Uh, yes, I think uh, the opportunity to do international work is uh, uh, important uh, and uh, highly interesting. But again, it's something you have to go after. Uh, it doesn't just uh, fall on your desk unless you're with a, a large firm that has international clients, in which case you might get a, might get a piece of it. But uh, I got uh, involved early on in an organization called the International Commission of Jurists, which has a Canadian section based in Ottawa. Uh, the main organization is uh, based in Geneva. Uh, they have conferences, they have meetings, they have a great interest in different uh, issues that arise. Uh, I think I joined it when I was in my late 20s, uh, and I'm, I'm still a member. Uh, there are international sections, or there used to be at the Canadian Bar Association. There's an organization called the Philippe Kirsch uh, Institute. Philippe Kirsch was a Canadian diplomat who was uh, uh, very involved in setting up the International Criminal Court. So there are, and Canada has a very distinguished career in uh, international human rights. John Humphreys. Uh, a Canadian diplomat at the uh, 
United Nations is largely credited with drafting the UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, I think uh, outside, in the outside world, Canada is regarded as a neutral. It's got no uh, military or territorial uh, ambitions. Uh, seems to uh, uh, have a, a high measure of integrity and produces very good lawyers. So uh, I've had uh, quite a lot of exposure to international litigation. I uh, was part of the Canadian legal team in the Gulf of Maine dispute in uh, the mid-80s. And again, uh, in the case against France over St. Pierre and Miquelon, another boundary dispute, 1991. And since I've left the bench, a lot of my time is with international investment uh, disputes as arbitrator uh, for the World Bank. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of Canadian lawyers involved in that work because they taken the trouble to get involved in that work. They've gone to conferences and uh, uh, some of them have written uh, uh, articles, gotten to know the players in the field. Uh, and my uh, experience, uh, particularly over the last 10 years during these arbitrations, is that Canadian lawyers are as good as any in the world and better than most. I think most of these high profile uh, international arbitrations, which are generally run by British or American law firms, a few French firms, uh, there are other firms, but the principally US and American and uh, British. And they, uh, they tend to be very inefficient. They've got too many lawyers on the file. They tend to be long-winded. They tend to lack focus. Uh, I think many trials in uh, the laws would be conducted much more efficiently and better by uh, comparison, by Canadian lawyers, by comparison with these mm -hmm. others. And I think, uh, you know, if, if, if we have a problem, it's because we don't go after the work. Uh, is there, some years ago, I went to the French bar, the Barreau National in, in France, a gathering of 4,000 or so French lawyers, like the annual CBA. Uh, there were a handful of lawyers, mainly from Quebec, but uh, you know, maybe four or five from Quebec. Now, there's a huge, you know, commercial uh, interchange with France and Quebec. Why weren't more Canadian lawyers there? You know, why don't they go to uh, meetings uh, in London? There are constant uh, meetings of international bodies. Uh, organizations. The London Court of International Arbitration is just an arbitral uh, institute. There's a thing called Global Arbitration Review that puts out constant programs on international arbitration. Uh, there's an organization called Juris in the United States that puts together all kinds of, of meetings, conferences, and so on. So the opportunities are there, but they have to be Taken, you know, they're, they're not going to come and yeah. uh, sit on your desk of their own accord. The way the way you describe all these commercial uh, international arbitration centers, it's it's so refreshing because it sounds like they actually work, and that's that's a nice thing. Whereas um, the international, I guess, court, the ICC and the ICJ, 
and I know you had some experience at the International Court of Justice. Um, as far as I see, they're, they're uh, you know, and, and what do I know at the end of the day, but from my point of view, they're a disappointment. And I mean, one, one uh, headline kind of summed it up by saying that, uh, don't worry, Afghanistan, Afghanistan is going to be safe. They're a member to the Rome statute. They're, the ICC has got uh, jurisdiction there. So, I mean, it's a bit uh, tongue-in-cheek saying that, but uh, the, the commercial centers, like you say, work. But what's your take on the international when states are involved, public international law? It just doesn't work as well, or do you have a, an opinion about that? And I, I know you're coming from a neutral Canadian point of view, so... Yeah, well, I, I think uh, that it's, uh, you know, effective in the area that it can be effective, and it's not effective in areas where it has no business. Uh, you know, the, it's not the, the International Court is not the Security Council. They, uh, uh, they deal with disputes that are referred to them where the parties agree. So they, they can't involve themselves in cases unless the parties agree that they should determine an issue uh, in many areas. For example, in the, when I was in The Hague uh, before the International Court of Justice in the Gulf of Maine dispute, uh, we were, uh, our case was interrupted by a, a case brought by Nicaragua against the United States uh, by reason of what Nicaragua said was American interference in, in Nicaragua and uh, mining uh, the harbor and uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, it, it was d dealt with uh, by the court uh, uh, in terms of the legal aspects. The court couldn't deal with the political aspects. All these boundary disputes that uh, the court uh, constantly dealing with, I mean, there is a, there's no way to, to cope with them other than either the international court or arbitration, which is equally uh, common, or militarily. Uh, governments uh, who have a dispute uh, would rather go to the court because if they're going to give up a claim, they'd rather have it taken away from them by the court than to abandon a claim to something the public thinks uh, belongs to uh, uh, that, uh, that country. Uh, the, the courts deal with a huge uh, range of uh, diplomatic issues. But uh, and the criminal court is on an entirely different uh, plane. Uh, you know, the, when you're trying to put somebody in, in jail, then you've got countries like the United States uh, refusing to uh, agree to the jurisdiction. It becomes very, very difficult. But on the other hand, uh, the, uh, the International Tribunal for the uh, atrocities arising out of Yugoslavia uh, was effective, was very effective, was very successful. And I was in The Hague at some of those uh, hearings. And, uh, you know, they're slow and uh, lots of complaints can be made, as indeed were made about the Nuremberg hearings. But uh, you know, international institutions do what they can. And they, they, they can't do more than the the governments of the world are prepared to let them. Uh, so what they do is they proceed incrementally, uh, attempting to establish a foothold and expanding the foothold, uh, pushing their jurisdiction. But I, 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 I don't agree with you. I, I think uh, properly understood, they, they're a very 
they're as effective as they possibly can be. I like that uh, positive way of looking at it. Thank, thank you for that perspective. Um, it's it's funny uh, uh, with in, in the past recent months, the New York governor uh, uh, quit. He resigned uh, for some allegations, and in his defence, it was very interesting. He said, uh, in his his mind, he never crossed a line, but the the line the line has moved, and he wasn't aware of that. So you know, clearly he crossed the line, at least according to this report. But has there been a point in your career, maybe as a Supreme Court judge, where you where the line surprised you? The societal line of something surprised you? Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, the world has uh, has moved a long way in the fifty-five years I've been at the bar. Right. Things that uh, were taken for granted uh, in the 1960s uh, are no longer uh, accepted. Yeah. The whole diversity uh, uh, concern, which is of high importance, uh, particularly with younger lawyers, uh, it was not seen as significant uh, through uh, the 60s, 70s. It began to be important in the 80s. Uh, when the charter came in and people became more conscious of rights, uh, people were more apt to consider themselves victims of uh, discrimination. Uh, there was an increasing awareness that uh, Aboriginal peoples had been very badly treated. Mm-hmm. So that you know, by the end of the 1980s, the contrast between how I was received in the court when ab- acting for an Aboriginal group uh, was 180 degrees from what I experienced in the 1960s on that Regina and George case. Mm-hmm. So uh, the world moves, and uh, I think that you're aware that the, the line is changing, but you're not necessarily aware of the intensity uh, with which uh, uh, you know, later generations come to see things, which uh, you took for granted. For example, the, the whole thing with Sir John A. MacDonald. Uh, I mean, I understand, obviously, the, the, the concern about the residential schools, but it seems to me uh, a, a lack of perspective to go after Sir John A. Macdonald and uh, Edgerton Ryerson and so on by taking one aspect of their career uh, and blowing it into their whole career and cancelling on that on, on that account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Certain things could just uh, unfortunately ruin ruin a career unnecessarily. Um, one one big issue these days, COVID nineteen. I'm wondering how it's affected your life uh, as a you know how's your working life, um, your professional life, your personal life. Has it been different? And then, I mean, the follow up to that, and this is a big honor of me to ask your honor, the judge, something like this: a constitutional question. These days, um, there's the the vaccine debate, and the question becomes how much can personal rights be infringed upon? Um, so just as an extreme example, I was talking to a colleague in Malaysia uh, back in July, and he said the governments shut everything down until, until December 31st, the end of the year. That seems like an extreme measure. 
there's different measures like uh, employers forcing being allowed to force their employees to get a vaccine um, getting vaccines being um, you know a requirement to do certain things enter certain places um, there's a movement I, I you know however you may feel about them uh, is one way or the other but from a personal rights point of view um, is you know where, where does that line drawn there's a whole movement saying don't force me to do things and it's an infringement on my rights so I could foresee a case like this maybe coming before the Supreme Court so maybe you can talk us through the deliberation process and maybe which way a, a court would go on something like this uh, well, on the, the COVID-19, uh, of course, the huge difference has been uh, everything having to be done uh, remotely. Yes. And uh, work uh, has uh, altered uh, immensely and, uh, and will continue to uh, affect uh, people. I, I read that a bunch of the Toronto law firms, including my firm, uh, Lensner Slat, is going to require vaccination. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have any uh, problem with that. I don't think it's a civil rights issue. I think it's equivalent to uh, the aviation uh, instruction. You know, you don't need to undergo surveillance, but uh, if you choose not to board the aircraft, uh, if you're not prepared to get vaccinated, uh, uh, don't come into the office. Uh, I think... Uh, well, it's not much different than the seatbelts. People say, well, I I should have the freedom uh, not to wear a seatbelt. That's my business. But it's not your business because if you get into a crash and uh, you get badly injured, the state picks up uh, the, the cost of uh, caring for you because you're too stupid to take precautions on your own um, behalf. Uh, there have been proposals, uh, you know, wild proposals saying, well, all right, you don't need to get vaccinated, but don't expect to get medical treatment if you get COVID-19 and you haven't been vaccinated. You know, or don't expect the government to pay for it. It'll come out of your own pocket. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very selfish uh, business, this refusal of vaccines, because it increases the vulnerability of the society. Uh, to uh, increased uh, exposure, increased uh, mutations, and so on, even though people who've been vaccinated can be carriers of it and so on. So it's not a, a simple thing, but it seems to me vaccines, vaccination certificates, uh, wearing masks, uh, you know, you have certain freedoms, but they're limited by what is demonstrably uh, you know, necessary, appropriate uh, in a democratic society. I'd be very surprised if the courts held that these things are not demonstrably necessary. But in any event, private organizations, restaurants, nightclubs, and so on, uh, are not uh, bound by uh, the charter. They can run their business as they see fit. Personally, I would feel better going to a restaurant knowing the people have been vaccinated and not knowing whether the people I'm sitting next to uh, have no vaccinations and have been exposed to COVID-19 in their workplace. Mm -hmm. fair, fair enough. Uh, I want to zoom in here on your Supreme Court years. 
we don't have that much time left. So if we can uh, go there and start with, I read this, I don't know, 500 page book or so. And it was very interesting because it gives the you know, insight into a bit of the relationships of the justices. So um, maybe you can, you were there for I don't know, 10, over 10 years, uh, 13 years, um, talk about the relationships, the importance of relationships, and maybe how you can be productive with relationships or despite them, and how it works a little bit, maybe your experience. I think it varies uh, from judge to judge. Uh, I think uh, the uh, personal relations among the judges uh, uh, are very important. Uh, I think uh, you can't have a situation on a court uh, of nine judges where some uh, judge or judges are not talking to others, mm -hmm. as you have on the provincial appeal courts or trial courts. And everybody simply has to get along as part of the job description. Uh, that said, some, some judges get along better with one another than others. And, uh, uh, you know, you refer to Claire Lerie Dubay. Uh, you know, she had a very strong personality and some judges reacted against it. Some judges acted very strongly uh, in favor uh, of it. Uh, I think uh, you know a number, a number of measures are taken to preserve relationships, to prevent any judge from feeling on the outside, uh, from preventing, uh, from feeling that you know a group of five judges has already heard what they want and decided the case before it's actually been argued in court. Uh, that's one of the reasons why almost everything is done in writing within the court. So if I have something to say about a particular case or where clearly the debate has circulated a draft judgment, everybody gets to know my view at the same time. Uh, I don't go up and down the corridors, uh, you know, seeking support for or against whatever my uh, position is. When I got to the court, there was a understanding that you didn't discuss cases before oral argument. And again, that was to prevent uh, cabals forming within the group of judges to uh, skew the outcome or prejudge the outcome or force the outcome. And that, you know, was uh, a very carefully uh, thought out uh, measure. Uh, to maintain good relations among the judges. So uh, it's it's uh, critical that uh, the judges get along with each other. By and large, I think they like each other uh, uh, and respect each other. Uh, but uh, without that uh, you know, respect, uh, the court couldn't function. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your your years there do um, I mean what what major cases stand out uh, as significant and meaningful for you? Well, some of the cases uh, are you know uh, stand out because of the subject matter, like the Quebec uh, secession reference, uh, some of the national security certificate uh, cases, uh, certainly. Uh, 
Chawuli on the health care, uh, Burns and Rafi on the death penalty, uh, the uh, uh, same-sex marriage uh, cases. Uh, you know, uh, by definition, uh, most of the stuff that gets to the Supreme Court is uh, important. It has to be of public importance or it's not accepted, uh, leave isn't granted. A lot of the criminal cases uh, uh, were of, of great interest. Uh, you know, police powers, uh, the whole business of gun control, whether uh, you know, somebody picked up uh, for a traffic offense, it turns out they have a gun and they get charged for possession of a gun, or drugs are sp uh, spied, so somebody driving, uh, you know, through a red light suddenly is on a major drug trafficking charge. You saw last year that uh, Indian chief in Alberta, whose truck apparently didn't have a renewal certificate, and he kind of got physically beaten up by the Mounties uh, uh, on some you know, minor issue. So uh, uh, all of, you, you certainly have a sense in all of these issues that these are of significance not only to the parties but to the broader uh, society, and that and you derive a great sense of privilege in being part of uh, delivering an opinion, delivering the judgments uh, uh, on those issues. I also thought the personal side of the Supreme Court uh, very rewarding. I like the people. There were lots of interesting functions. We had exchanges with other courts in other countries. Uh, and that uh, itself was, gave kind of global perspective. Uh, that was very interesting. Did any one international court or judge stand out as, uh, the, you know, they swayed the court in one way or another? No, I don't think uh, they they swayed the court at all, but I think that the uh, uh, the, the exchanges were, well, I'll take two contrasts. One was a visit we had to the uh, um, the top court in the so the constitutional court in the uh, in Russia uh, which is uh, you know has a somewhat questionable legal system uh, and uh, it was pretty well acknowledged uh, you know by the judges that there that there was interference by the government in fact at one of our sessions the head of the constitutional court proudly stated that before our meeting uh, he'd had a discussion that morning with President Putin. Well, you know, that struck us differently than the way he intended it. Uh, right. Uh, uh, on the other end, uh, we had a very uh, good series of meetings with the German Constitutional Court. Uh, they have a very uh, developed uh, human rights uh, system, a very uh, uh, interesting and apposite uh, jurisprudence. Uh, we had very interesting meetings with the Israeli Supreme Court of Israel, uh, where we got uh, exposed to this debate between whether you emphasize Israel as a democratic and Jewish state or as a Jewish and democratic state, and which prevails. So all of these, I don't think, provided particular instruction for how uh, we went about our work in Canada. 
but it certainly enlarged our vision as to how judges operate with different issues in different jurisdictions. That's really fascinating. Um, looking at it from the public's point of view, as even uh, lawyers who read cases, is there any insight you can give us into reading a case? And what I mean by that is, um, first of all, generally speaking, but specifically, there's an interesting law in, in Jewish law that says if there's a unanimous judgment, you shouldn't believe it because it means the one with, who didn't get any votes didn't have good representation. So is there anything in to read into, into the amount of judges on either side, you know, a unanimous judgment one way or the other? Anything we can glean from someone who sat on the highest court? Just into reading into judgments generally. Well, I, I, I mean, I think there are different messages being sent by the court. Uh, for example, in the Quebec secession case, uh, the court was very careful to issue the reasons by the court, not in the name of an individual uh, judge. Uh, the idea being that the court gives it more authority and less to argue about. Uh, because if it's written by Judge X, then critics will say, oh, well, everybody knows Judge X is a left-wing nut or a right-wing nut or, a, you know, enthralled to uh, the business world or, or whatever. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, then it is important uh, to get at least five judges on a, a case because they are on a judgment. Because at that point, you know, like it or not, that's the law. Uh, after you get five, then you can have concurring judgments and dissents, uh, which I think are useful because they bring out into the open uh, debate which is taking place uh, on the court. Uh, but I, I think it, the court fails if it doesn't uh, uh, produce a, a, at least a majority of judges on the one set of reasons. Concurring judgments uh, are rarely, I think, of great uh, uh, importance. Uh, they uh, tend to be a bit of a, a gloss on what the, the main judgment has said, uh, but it undermines the credibility of the main uh, judgment to some extent. Uh, a dissent, if it's a serious dissent based on a serious point, which it obviously should be, I think is valuable for uh, debate uh, and uh, involving the, the legal profession in some of these issues. For example, the whole question of whether you can recover compensation for purely economic loss. There were a series of cases beginning in the mid-90s, which went back and forth, and there were this whole series of judgments, majority, concurring, dissenting, and slowly a position evolved within the Supreme Court, and eventually the, the law was more or less settled. Well, I think it's very valuable that uh, lawyers can see that progression and better understand why the law is the way it is than if it was all done in a black box and the court simply said, well, here, here's the law, apply it. I read once that you your your first career choice before law was psychiatry. 
So, wondering how much of psychiatry do you see in the practice of law, in arbitration and mediation in particular? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, psychiatry in the sense of uh, having to uh, understand people and explain uh, what they're up to. Uh, certainly, uh, in criminal cases, uh, a lawyer who presents a, a successful speech in favor of uh, the accused has got to understand the accused and the position the accused was in, if there are any extenuating circumstances. Uh, in addition to the legal points to bring out some kind of emotional uh, basis on which to acquit. Uh, I think uh, understanding why businessmen operate the way they do, understanding how judges you know, act the way they do, other counsel. I think lawyers are constantly uh, resorting to a kind of amateur psychology of what's going on in the head of your opponent, uh, your judge, your client, the other side, whatever. Right. I think the you know, law has a lot to do with psychiatry. It's got a lot to do with theater. It's got a lot to do with history. It's, I think what is one of the main attractions. Yes. So before we let you go, are there any wise words you can just share with the younger generation of lawyers among us or those looking to get into law? Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's important for young lawyers to... Uh, give some serious thought as to why they went to law school, what what really they want to be able to say to themselves when their career is over, uh, and whether they accomplish what they set out to accomplish. I think there's a, a, a real danger as a young lawyer of uh, you know, getting into a firm, getting quite pleased with yourself, uh, you know, buying a house with a huge mortgage, cars, marriage, children, and you lock yourself into a career path that you may not uh, want to have. And a lot of lawyers who are doing work which they would dearly get out of if they could, they're not enjoying it, but they do it because it brings in income. So I tell uh, you know, law clerks, students, anybody who's interested that uh, uh, they, they, they should really be vigilant to determine whether their career is progressing in the direction uh, they want. Not to sit back and say, oh, well, uh, you know, life will dictate its own agenda and I have to go along with it. I think on the contrary, you can make your breaks. As we discussed earlier, you can go out and make, uh, make a practice where none would otherwise have existed. Uh, and if a law firm that you're with is a constraint on that, they don't want you to do it. They want you to stick at the bread and butter work. Then you're in the law, wrong law firm. You should, you should leave. You shouldn't be afraid from jumping from job to job. Uh, you know, if you're good, uh, uh, the firm will be very anxious uh, to retain you. Young lawyers, I think, underestimate their bargaining power. Uh, they are the you know, not only the lifeblood of the firm going forward, uh, but the you know the more able the junior lawyers, the more effective uh, the senior lawyers. 
So as a, as a senior lawyer, I found you know, a young lawyer who was really helpful and bright and hardworking and so on. Well, I, I considered it a huge advantage and, uh, you know, would uh, mentor to the extent the mentorship was accepted and seek help to the extent the help was offered. Uh, so uh, I think you're captain of your own fate. I think uh, uh, you can get knocked off course by events. Uh, but the important thing is to know where you're trying to go and why you're trying to get there uh, and to uh, keep track of time because in no time at all, it'll be 55 years since you were called to the bar. That, that's really incredible. I mean, again, that's such a long career. And they say you retired from the Supreme Court back in 2011, but you've barely retired. You're still working and you're still, still speaking to, to us, to myself. So what's your view on retirement and what's the key to longevity? Well, I think judges, uh, retired judges are in a different position from retired lawyers. I think, uh, and I'm now speaking of the litigation people, there's a huge amount of stress involved in, in litigation. Uh, you've got uh, clients barking at you all the time. You've got difficult issues. You've got difficult opponents, difficult judges, difficult courts. So I think uh, after 30, 35 years, uh, the, the litigation lawyers are just sick of it. And they're quite happy to throw in the sponge and go off golfing or travel or, or what have you. I think if you go to the bench, uh, you, you have a, a transition uh, where you get uh, you know very interesting work. You're not under the same stress. You have much more control over your life, uh, over your work-life balance. So I think when you retire from the bench, uh, you're probably still interested in the subject matter. And it's easier to transition into a post-retirement uh, practice or arbitration or whatever, because you, you don't have the same burnout factor as a hardworking litigation lawyer does up to the point where uh, they say enough is enough. Right. Well, you should continue for many, many years to continue working and teaching and growing and sharing your wisdom with the rest of us. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it, and I'm sure everybody else will as well. So again, thank you so much. And I'll, I'll leave you the last word before we let you go. Well, I, only to say that I don't know how wise the, the words are. Uh, I can uh, put on the table my personal experience. Others can uh, you know, make up their own minds. I, I, I should just leave uh, talking about career paths. Uh, I was at a, a Jessup moot a few years ago, and uh, the dinner speaker was the managing partner of uh, White & Case, of course, one of the largest law firms in the world, based in New York. He's a guy from Ottawa. Yeah. And he uh, delivered uh, the message to the students that when he'd been called to the bar, uh, joint White and Case had a chance to go to Moscow. Everybody told him it was a career killer, uh, sort of outpost of the firm. Well, he was there, and then he was in the Far East, and he kicked around the firm, and then he was in different parts of uh, White and Case. 
And everybody kept telling him that this was not the correct career path, that he was getting a reputation as a dilettante and couldn't make up his mind what he wanted to do and where he wanted to live, so on and so forth, right up to the day he was elected managing partner of the firm. Uh-huh. So his message was, you know, follow your dream, do what you, what you want to do. Uh, if you want to do it, then you're likely to be good at it, and you're likely to do it with enthusiasm. So I thought that was a very good message from you know, somebody who's uh, prominent, really, in the global legal community. Uh, and uh, words of good advice, so I would echo them. I love it. I love that advice, and I take it to heart, and I try to live that way as well. So I second that, and uh, we should continue living that way, uh, you know, for many, many years to come, and enjoy every day. Okay. Well, thank you, Abby. Good luck with your series. Thank you.